Hello everyone, and after a three-month hiatus, welcome back to History in Today. We'll be kicking off Season 3 in a few weeks, but because of the recent anti-Semitic incidents at our school, University of Connecticut, we felt it would make sense to have the following conversation now. We sat down with Gianna Michelson, a fellow UConn student, an intern at UConn Hillel, and a co-host of the podcast Ready, Set, Israel to discuss anti-Semitism on college campuses, as well as a more general conversation about anti-Semitism past and present. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get into it. Okay, so this week we are talking about um, anti-Semitism on campus, uh, on college campuses. Uh, but um, we're going to try to, you know, start with that. We're going to start with that uh, topic specifically, and then kind of give a broader context later on in the episode. So welcome, uh, Gianna Michelson. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, guys. Okay, so. Um, I guess the first thing we want us we want to start off with is we are all uh, at UConn currently. I mean, not actually physically, I don't think, but we're all part of the UConn community. And there were over the over the holiday of Passover uh, three inc three anti-Semitic incidents and four anti-Semitic incidents in the year before that. So that made a total of seven. Uh, and those were only the reported ones. So there were there were a lot of others that were either not reported or just kind of the general attitude of campus. Um, so I guess the 1st thing, the 1st thing I want to ask you is, uh, just what is your reaction to the recent events? Yeah, sure. So, um, I personally have been invested into the world of Jewish activism and Israel for all of my college career. So at 1st, when the 1st couple incidents came up on campus, um, it's unfortunate, but I think that we're kind of desensitized to it. So when these things happen to me, it was kind of like, oh, okay, like another one, like that's expected, um, which is a problem in itself, but I think it really wasn't um, ringing any bells for me or ringing the alarms. So I think when it did hit me, it was when um, this event happened, the second one that was reported during Passover with a Jewish student who was like verbally harassed. Um, and the fact that it was during Passover I found out about this while I was at a Seder. Um, so I think like kind of that whole experience of like being in a place where I was celebrating the Jewish holiday and hearing that like another thing happened and it wasn't quote unquote, just a swastika drawn on some random building. Like this was an actual Jewish student who was like someone in our community that was harassed. Um, and I think that's when it really kind of hit home for me. Um, and that was like, it was already like, okay, like this is like something's happening here. And then the third one was reported like the next day. So I think at that point, like my reaction was just like, like what's going on? First of all, like, is this just a random chain of events that happened to happen during a very unfortunate time during holiday Passover? Um, or is this like speaking to the wider culture of Yukon, believing in these ideas and like, wanting to express these ideas and being intentional with it and expressing it during Passover. Yeah, I, I have a question um, for both of you, actually. How how do you perceive, you know, the university's response? In my, you know, in my opinion, their response to bias in, instances in whatever identity you hold, whatever community you're a part of, I think it's very lackluster. Um, but if you guys want to talk about that a little bit more, um, I think the viewers would be, you know, curious to see what your opinions are on that. 
So I actually I, I worked uh, when I was a senator in the uh, undergraduate student government last semester. I worked with Hillel and a few other senators to create some legislation around the bias reporting system. And this was this was after there had been uh, I believe three other anti-Semitic incidents uh, that had been reported either on you know I think one was through Hillel that actually reported it because it hadn't been reported anywhere else, uh, and then another was through. Um, the Instagram account Jewish on campus, which does a really great job highlighting a lot of instances that happen. And um, we put together this legislation to get the university to respond better, because I remember one of the responses was an email sent to just the people in the residence hall. It happened. Um, another one was a tweet, I believe. Uh, and we were like, hey, you know, we want. You know, a better, more consistent. Uh, more consistent response for every bias incident. We didn't make it specifically um, anti-Semitic and uh, anti-Semitic incidents. We just said, you know, this should be the case for everybody. And you know, we we got we got an answer. Uh, they they worked with us. They created a rubric uh, for you know what to do when when bias incidents happen. And I, from what I've heard, they are doing a better job than they did. But you know, the fact that this is a better job. Uh, it's, it's clearly not the job that needs to be done. <laughs> That's how I feel. I feel like, you know, yeah, baby steps, but uh, baby steps aren't really, you know, baby steps clearly aren't preventing more of these. So bigger steps need to be taken. Yeah, I agree. I think um, I can speak more a little bit to this semester in particular because I've been more involved with the requests to the university to take more action. Um, but I know last semester a petition had to be made um for the university to take more like definite action um which like shouldn't have even been a question in the first place the fact that a petition has been made i think was in itself like unnecessary um but i mean this semester obviously it got a lot of attention and it blew up the fact that there was so much anti-semitism happening at uconn all at once um it blew up like on campus and outside of it it was like in the harvard current like it was, there was a lot of attention on it. So you'd expect the university to kind of want to mitigate that and take action so that like, at least they look better, if not like out of the altruism of wanting to help Jewish students on campus. Um, but we really haven't seen much from them this semester. Um, I know USG did call for them to create an action plan by last Friday um, and that didn't happen. So like they really haven't, taken any concrete steps yet they did put out a statement um and the statement that they put out originally it was condemning like all forms of hate and like included with lgbtq hatred which should not be lumped together um i think each of those biases should have their own time and their own space and putting them together and then he used like some reference to like the spirit of eastern passover and like that was just unnecessary like this isn't about easter like it's just not a necessary like correlation to be drawn here um and it just wasn't really very strong um but i know at this point there's a petition going around to create a one credit course that will speak about anti-semitism the same way that there was an anti-black racism course that was pushed really heavily from the university um and that's kind of something that i I've always been frustrated by is the fact that certain forms of bias and hatred are kind of 
recognized more than others. And then the ones that are targeting more smaller groups that don't make it into the news are the ones that don't get as much attention um, in the media, in instances like this from the university. Like, yes, it took a lot for the university to take a stand against racism, um, but that was also in the wake of BOM. Like, they kind of had to. Um, but at this point, like, anti-Black racism is a huge issue and like there's so much focus on it. There's this course, the university like puts on so many events that condemn it, um, but there isn't really the same kind of attention or sense of urgency when it happens to a community like the Jewish people. So that's always been frustrating to me. Um, so hopefully this time admin will decide like, okay, we did this course for anti-Black racism. This is another problem that's happening right now on our campus and like wider in America as a whole and like we need to make this course happen so hopefully they will um I'm not sure if it'll actually come to fruition but hopefully yeah so sort of to speak on you know the work that that I've done this year within USG we have been pushing for a total reconfiguration of general education requirements and the new plan that the university has created, which isn't going to launch until the class of 2020, or Six. it's not going to launch until 2026, but they're like really the class of 2030. So like, it's not going to come to fruition until very later on. But one of the things that we asked for is they have two columns. Um, there's in the whole plan, there's a total of, I think, six or seven columns. And the last two columns relate to like cultural experiences and then diversity, equity, and social justice. And so what we were calling for essentially was it was NAACP, UCO, and USG. We all created a proposal to include a widespread education of like all of these different groups, women, every single identity that students hold on campus. We we went into the course catalog and we literally took, I guess, um, we took inventory of what classes already exist because there are classes that exist for, you know, most of these identities. And I believe that a lot of these instances, especially in the case of like microaggressions happen because of a lack of education. And I think it's ironic that Essentially, we we put together this list of classes. We said this is what this is what needs to happen. Judaic studies courses were on there. Like every single identity had like representation within that list, and students would be able to pick a class, pick a class from that list in addition to whatever one credit course um would be would be added on the Judaic studies or um, anti-Semitism education. Um, but essentially, they shut it down. Like they didn't really give us a reason. They're just like, we're not like doing this. And I was, and this was literally like last week or like two weeks ago. And I'm like, you're literally going to tell us no, like in the middle of our seventh reported instance of anti-Semitism, but there is so many more instances, like you're really gonna do that. Um, so I think it's frustrating because they say that they want student input and they say that they wanna be advocates for people who are struggling on campus because of hatred. Um, but they don't actually take those concrete steps to to prove that they're they're dedicated to stopping that hatred on campus, which it's basically all of like talking the talk. Like they're not walking the walk, which is, you know, really disgusting as a student to see because we all pay to be here. And part of that experience is to make sure that everyone feels safe, which definitely isn't the case right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think um 
when we got a new president recently, like it was a question of okay, like maybe this one will take action, maybe this one will like be different than like other presidents in other universities. Um, but I think I think at first like I had hope personally for President Tomcat and his administration to be like, okay, like they seem like they were on our side at first and then like you said, they really haven't walked the walk um and taken action that they said they would. And yeah, like I personally don't get it. I feel like it's in their best interest to make it look like they're doing more at least so that they get less like attention negatively towards them. So it just doesn't really make sense to me. But um yeah, I don't know. I think it has been disappointing and the Jewish community I can speak to is like definitely feeling that frustration. Yeah. It's just I think the thing that the thing that annoys me the most is just this kind of this kind of sense of surprise that I see a lot of people having with just not just <clears throat> you know, not just these last couple, but even the ones in the fall where it's like, oh, where is this coming from? And um I think, you know, college specifically, and this is why we chose this to be the topic, anti-Semitism on college campuses has been on the rise since the 80s when the ADL started tracking it. Um, I did some research for a Daily Campus article earlier this week where um, I found that basically uh, the number we are at currently for anti-Semitic uh, acts or incidents on campus is, I believe, 2100 per year. Uh, it was three in 1984. It was 143, I want to say, in 1990s. In the 1990s, um, so that number has skyrocketed, and it's really scary because it, you know, it's clearly not just UConn. And um, I think you know, la last year, you know, I, I see, you know, a lot of times people kind of take microaggressions. They hear the word microaggressions, and they think, you know, oh, you know, it's not that bad. It's just, you know having to hear Holocaust jokes or something, which is not a bad thing, you know, it's, it's, it's not, a, not a mild thing, you know, I, I think, you know, unfortunately, that's something that definitely gets desensitized a lot, because when you go to a high school where you're, you know, not in a, in a majority of Jewish people, people say, oh, you're Jewish, let me tell you all of my really offensive jokes, mm -hmm. and, you know, that's not, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a violent act, but it still is, you know, obviously going to make people uncomfortable. But I think when people hear bias incidents, they think of stuff like that, where it's just like, you know, saying something really offensive. But then we see, you know, what happened to that kid where it was, you know, in person or, you know, vandalism or even, you know, really, really aggressive vandalism where um, the Chabad center at the university of delaware last year was uh art was a subject of arson um there was also a uh a kid at the university of kentucky i believe who got hit by a car during hanukkah um at a menorah lighting as people were like ch like yelling anti-semitic slurs out of the car and i think it's just you know stuff like this just seems to be getting more violent and it's everywhere like it's not just at UConn which once patterns like that start to emerge I think people really need to start paying more attention to the problem I agree I think I don't know if it's a chicken or the egg type of thing um I think universities are the place of genesis for a lot within like the wider society um so maybe it is that 
the university culture is what breeds this type of hatred um, and like allows it to disseminate widely throughout the rest of the country or maybe it's the opposite direction of the university just as representative of the country's attitudes as a whole um, but either way I think just like like you said looking specifically at what is going on on college campuses is really useful um, and at least just speaking to beliefs held by the country as a whole and I think it's very easy to google and see what's what are the current statistics of anti-Semitism in the country? And it is undoubtedly rising um, and people are getting very concerned about it. Um, I think there is definitely a hotspot in New York City. There's been a lot going on in that area. Um, also in California as well, especially on college campuses there, they're like extremely hostile towards Jewish students. Um, but yeah, I think UConn is an interesting case study. And at first, like, Whenever people um, I would speak to that are part of this like network of Jewish students or Israel activists and people would be like, oh, like, how is UConn? And they'd come from campuses that were like the UC schools in California or like Delaware or like Michigan. Um, and they've faced like very overt and very um, aggressive and like repetitive anti-Semitism at their campuses. And then I'd kind of say like, you know, like UConn's pretty chill, like UConn's pretty mild. Um, we don't get a lot of like anti-Israel sentiment, a lot of like BDS pushes. Um, so I would always say like we're pretty mild, but I think like after this has happened recently um, about what's going on over Passover and what's going on this year, um, I feel like it is really useful to look at a campus like UConn that first of all, might be very similar to a lot of other campuses that aren't one of these extreme hotspots. I think a campus that is supposed to be mild and supposed to be welcoming to students because we are like a Northern state and like in the Northeast um, and Connecticut has a lot of Jewish students here, but seeing what's actually going on here, I think it probably is representative of a lot of other schools as well. Um, and I think also the fact that it's still happening while we are a Northeast state and while we have a Jewish population, they're our Jewish centers on campus, I think speaks to the severity of it and the fact that it is kind of worsening and becoming more alarming. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with everything that you you both just said. I think it's very insightful. I think another part of it too is that the institutions that we have in America, whether it be education, whether it be healthcare, like they're designed to keep people with certain ID identities out. Like and Specifically with education, we see a lot of the time that people aren't educated on the true like history and background of, of different groups, anti-Semitism not being the exception. I think that a lot of people do have some, you know, understanding of the Holocaust, I would hope. But even then, like it's not it's not like covered that much in, in K through 12 education. And I feel like universities is just a continuation of that because that's what the education system currently is designed to do right so i think that until we see you know an active shift which you know going back i think was what we were trying to do in usg is like shift it so that we're actually like talking about these identities um unfortunately the lack of education is just going to perpetuate everything that's happening especially with with instances that happen on a microaggression level, because people might say things that they just genuinely don't know 
is offensive because they haven't gotten that background. Um, and then there's also like, do the research on your own, like personally, you know, I would think that if students see, oh, this is like the 7th instance of something reported on my campus, like, maybe I should read into it, but a lot of people don't. And that's just perpetuating the, the ignorance around anti Semitism in particular, but we also see it with, you know, other communities and identities as well. Yeah, um, if I could speak to both of those points you just made, those are really awesome points, Katie. I think um, it is difficult. I think as like Black Lives Matter has really made its impact on the country, I think at this point, um, activism has kind of taken a forefront in social media. And I saw a couple posts at certain points that were kind of talking about like people being exhausted um, from all these different causes. And I think it is difficult to ask people to do so much research on their own. Um, and I think like in that case, I'm sort of cynical to expect like people who might not be like us and like want to learn about these things and care enough about it and like want to devote their free time to like researching history and social justice. Um, I think I have less hope for that kind of push, um, encouraging people to do their own research. And I think they're, the answer more lies in like, in a way forcing people to hear about this by putting it in education systems and into curriculums. And if I could speak to that as well. Um, so a lot of people, unfortunately, don't know what the Holocaust is. And I think that's surprising because I think, again, like we are from Connecticut, there's Jewish people around us. Um, it's kind of like basic knowledge, I guess, but even within Connecticut and especially outside of the Northeast, people have no idea what the Holocaust is, is never taught to them. Um, so that, kind of bottom line expectation is not universal throughout the entire country for sure, which I think we don't really realize coming from a place that is a little bit more like attentive towards this issue. Um, and I know in California, there is a new push to redesign their like public school curriculum. And they're focusing a lot on like different culture groups and like learning about that. But there was an intentional exclusion of the Jewish people from that curriculum. Um, and that has caused a lot of my friends in California to like, like they're absolutely livid, which is completely understandable. Um, but I think that's even a step worse beyond just like forgetting about it. Like they're intentionally excluding it from the curriculum. Um, and I think that's like a new way that this day and age, like in 2021, we're seeing not just people not knowing about the Holocaust because like they forgot to write about it in curriculum like decades before, but like curriculum being rewritten and still excluding it and like intentionally doing so. So I mean, that's like a new phenomenon that we're seeing right now. Yeah, I think kind of picking back, piggybacking off of the whole education idea and like the idea of, you know, a lot of people not, not in our, you know, kind of Northeastern sphere getting to learn a lot about the Holocaust. Um, I'd like to talk about kind of just asking you both what your experiences learning about anti-Semitism before coming to college were. Because for me, you know, we talked about the Holocaust kind of on a very surface level way. And if it wasn't for one specific teacher who really did kind of take an, take a, an interest and, and, you know, feel a need to really talk about this, <coughs> sorry, there really wouldn't have been any other kind of mention of anti-Semitism outside the Holocaust. And I think that's also a problem where a lot of times people hear the word anti-Semitism, they're like, oh, that ended 70 years ago, you know, 
you know, Hitler was killed and then there's no more anti-Semitism. But like, you know, we, my teacher in sophomore year of high school took, uh, took the time to show us a, you know, full length documentary about Munich in at the Olympics, which is an event that like, you know, my dad told me about when I was like six years old and it was like the first time the Olympics came on and my dad mentioned it or something. But like, I feel like if you're not Jewish or you don't have a specific teacher that like talks about, you know, not just Munich, but like any kind of anti-Semitism that isn't the Holocaust, like you're probably not going to get exposed to it. So like, I just want to know, like, uh, I guess I know Katie, uh, you, you know, came up through the public school system, but Gianna, did you, were you also in public school or? Yes, I was. Cool. So like, what were, I guess either one of you guys can go first. What were your, you know, exposures? Katie, I'd love to hear you speak on this to hear your experience. Yeah. So my my school you know keeping up with what you're you're saying sam we didn't have much experience to anti-semitism outside of the holocaust but we did have i i want to say like once a year we had like a survivor of the holocaust like come speak to us about their experience which i thought like as a person who's into history is very cool because you have someone who actually like went through that experience coming to like speak about it and i think that that adds like another like level of understanding that you can't necessarily get from just a video so i liked how they did that but again like i'm also disappointed that i didn't you know get to experience that education at any other you know in any other context but i think that something that i'd like to note is that you know in tune of like we should be including this in the curriculum so everyone has to learn it like something that i saw when when this person would come speak to us is that some people like me would be paying like avid attention and just like, you know, how do I like absorbing everything that like he was saying, because I was like, this is just such a like interesting opportunity to really get that primary like perspective on it. But then there were also students in like the back of the room, like on their phone, like even whispering to like their friends. And so like that personally, like upset me, but like when we're talking about when we're talking about education too, it's very difficult because even if you, you know, I guess force, and I'm putting force in quotes, um, the curriculum on people, like they're they're gonna they're gonna do what they want with it. They can choose to like active like passively listen and like passively not learn about it. So it's like it makes it difficult and it's frustrating because it's like you're we're taking the steps to like make sure that it's being taught, but even at that point, people can choose to ignore that education because of their preconceived bias or you know their just unwillingness to change and like evolve their perspective so i think that what you know my town did was good i think it was a good step but at the same time like students are gonna take what they will at their free will which you know is kind of it, well it's totally disappointing um to see and to witness as a fellow student but also i'm sure like educators at the school felt the same way so yeah i think that's a really good point and i mean you guys are future educators like you can probably speak more to how to exactly get people to pay attention in the classroom um i think that's awesome that your school did that i feel like that's a probably more of an exception to the norm than it is representative of the rest of public schools um i think like my school never had holocaust survivors come to speak and um, I think the Holocaust was discussed in like history classes at certain points, 
but again like there was definitely no conversation about anti-semitism beyond the holocaust and i can definitely say that with confidence um and i think a lot of the education that i received was outside when i went to hebrew school and learned about the holocaust um so i don't think that there was yeah there really wasn't much um offered to me especially like even with the holocaust like i think that's really cool that your school did that and just as a sidebar i think that's a concern that people are having um, right now because we are getting farther and farther away from the Holocaust and that pool of survivors is getting smaller and smaller. Um, and that's like a huge conversation that's happening in the Jewish community. People being like, oh, well, like, what are we gonna do when there's like no more forced hand accounts available to use on like, you know, a show or like all that stuff. So I think, um, it's great to be able to hear it while we can and while we're still like able to access these people. And I know places like God Vashem are doing like incredible work to document these experiences, but it's a question of how will this shift and what will our country and world look like once that generation is completely like gone and will people um, even more fervently decide to deny the Holocaust, which is already happening while survivors are still around. Um, but I think that's like, as a sidebar, just definitely a concern that people are having. Um, but yeah, I think like my personal education system did not even go so far as to include that and let alone like go beyond and talk about any semitism that happened post Holocaust. I also think I was having a conversation with someone recently about kind of the whole, you know, that we're the last generation that's gonna have access to survivors like firsthand, but also that like in schools, it seems like one of the only ways we kind of connect to the Holocaust or teachers use to connect to the Holocaust is Anne Frank, which I am kind of conflicted on that. And I kind of want to get your opinions about that and how, you know, yes, it's a primary source and historians love primary sources, but also like, it's not a, you know, I feel like people kind of like read that and are like, oh yeah, this is, you know, how everybody was. And like, you know, obviously the diary doesn't really, you know, I don't, you know, that diary is a very, very small, small perspective experience of, you know, what it was like. And I feel like that, I, I wonder if that book will become even more prevalent once it's kind of, you know, we need only primary sources because we don't have actual people to talk to. I wonder if things like that will become kind of the only thing we do where it's like, okay, we talked about it. Like, you know, it's a, it's a rough subject. We talked about it and then just move on as opposed to actually kind of delving into what it was like. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, um... I'm sure educators really like it because it's a children's perspective on the Holocaust, which I think is useful, um, like you said, in some cases. Um, but yeah, like, like it's easy to say, like, obviously there's so many different experiences of the Holocaust, but I think the more that I've actually myself gotten to take the time to like learn about it, like the more true that becomes. And I think there are so many different perspectives and so many different experiences and stories um, that no one account of it is sufficient to really like encompass the entire just event. Um, so I think that's already problematic, like no matter what the 
firsthand account is, I think just having one perspective is like already going to be um, lacking. Um, but like there is so much more to it than just Jewish people hiding um, from the Nazis. Like there's Jewish people who were spending time like in much worse circumstances. Um, and like, what was the experience like for Jews like all throughout Europe during that time versus just one family? Um, and yeah, like I think it's definitely useful to, I think like a lot of children probably read that book and they're like, oh my God, like this girl's like kind of my age, like that's crazy. And it hits them a little bit. So I think that's definitely useful. But like you said, it's definitely not enough to be like the full Holocaust education. Yeah, I definitely think that there's a tendency for people to treat, I guess, education with, you know, people who hold certain identities, like creating a monolith out of people and saying, oh, like, I looked at this one person's experience, so everyone must experience it the same way, which isn't the case. Like, we see in all different communities, people respond to things differently, and, you know, it may be you know, the overarching response is very similar, but like when you really like get down into like the deeper layers of it, people have like different opinions on, you know, different things within that overarching topic that sometimes or most of the time just gets lost. I mean, I don't want to get off topic too much, but you know, I, I study indigenous peoples. It's one of my minors and that's particularly one group that has never had, you know, primary sources because they history just wasn't told through their, you know, their perspective. And, you know, what we see with that is that what gets into the mainstream media is more of a more generalizations, more stereotypes in history that's like not even true. So I think that it's the responsibility of our generation to make sure, you know, and it and the burden doesn't just fall on people who are Jewish, like it falls on everyone because it's everyone's responsibility to help educate everyone else, whether people are like lazy to do the research like that's, you know, that's their, you know, burden to bear. Um, but making sure that this correct history is still being taught and that, you know, it doesn't get jaded by just one perspective, like, oh, I read Anne Frank's diary, so this is just how every single Jewish person would react to the Holocaust. Like, no, like, that's not, you know, and maybe that's something that, you know, educators should be doing is saying, this is just one account and, like, everyone thinks about this differently. This is, this is one instance, but then at the same time, having, having, I would like to think that our generation would help contribute and proactively make sure that, you know, this history isn't lost, you know, through, um, you know, a lack of primary sources that you know, may arise in the future. So I want to shift a little bit to kind of talking about how um, specifically we think uh, history and, and the context of all of this has led to the anti-Semitic attitudes we see just in the U.S. today in general. It doesn't have to be specifically college campuses. But like one thing, I guess I want to kind of start the conversation off with. Um, one thing I've had a lot of conversations with people recently is QAnon, where like this is something that you know has just like kind of like it's it's scary how quickly it's like come up and 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 you know taken a lot of power in this country where, you know, we saw January 6th and a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, kind of backing principles of it. I obviously, I haven't done, you know, too much information. I haven't done too much digging into it because it's just utter nonsense, <laughs> but 
a lot of it just kind of reminds me of anti-Semitic rhetoric that's been existing for centuries, specifically, you know, the, you know, kidnapping of children and using them to enrich the establishment, which sounds an awful lot like it could be rooted in blood libel. Um, but uh, just like, I guess that's just like my example. It's something I've seen recently that just has kind of just been like, oh yeah, that has some anti-Semitic feelings on it. Uh, what are your What are your feelings for both of you guys? Um, things you've seen recently. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting to see how anti-Semitism has emerged in lots of different places in society, and I think that's one of them. Um, I think it's kind of come up in a lot of like extremist groups. Um, and a lot of white supremacy. Um, I mean, like, at the January 6th, um, the Capitol riots, like, people were wearing Camp Auschwitz sweatshirts. Like, it unfortunately has merged a lot into that rhetoric. I mean, it always was part of that rhetoric. Like, that's the nature of white supremacy is to exclude people like the Jewish people, among others. Um, so to see that being, the fans being flamed, of that throughout the country, I think is, um, it just makes sense that like more anti-Semitism has also been bred out of that. Um, so that's definitely scary and it's definitely super dangerous and like, not just to the Jewish people, but to a lot of different groups. Um, but I think it's possible that people don't realize that the Jewish people are a major focus and target of that type of ideology in those groups. Um, so if it's not paid attention to enough, it could be extra problematic, I guess. Um, and I think it's important also to clarify that that is not the only place that anti-Semitism is being bred. And I think that's a problem that we see out of the polarization that has come from the past administration. Um, and people like to kind of associate those two things of anti-Semitism with like far-right extremism or just like more right even if it's not the extremism um but anti-Semitism has also been growing in the far left side of politics as well in a way that is in my opinion almost more pervasive and more dangerous because it is less overt it isn't the swastikas and the Camp Auschwitz sweatshirts it's um a lot more like it's new it's a type of anti-semitism that's kind of like hiding behind like guises of social justice and of like just people trying to act righteous um and progressive but yes like it exists on that far right but it also exists on the far left and it exists in other places as well um and all of them need to be addressed so yeah that's that's my take yeah, I think that I definitely agree that, you know, it exists on all like areas of, I guess, the polit political spectrum, if that's what we're we're going to call it. I think that definitely this past administration and connecting to like QAnon really exacerbated, you know, what already exists. And I say that because I, I just had to do a little bit of research on QAnon for my anthropology class. Who, who knew I'd be researching QAnon for my anthropology class, but it was talking about how like they view like Trump to be like this, you know, like, God like figure for like their movement and 
the the thing that's interesting about QAnon is that, like, yes, they they have these certain you know white they have these white supremacist ideals, but they try to like cover it as saying that like they're against the establishment. But like white supremacy is the establishment. Like that is what America was founded on. So like, I personally don't see the validity in you know their argument at all. Um, but just to you know pull up some statistics from 2017, and I know that this is right after you know Trump became president. Um, you know the ADL identified 1,986 anti-Semitic inc incidents perpetrated throughout the United States in 2017. And that was an increase of 57% over the 1,267 instances that were reported in 2016. And I think that that in itself, like, shows just the, the insensitivity or, like, the desensit, oh my gosh, desensitizing that's happening around the country. And it's at all levels. I think that people often, you know, speaking to your point, Gianna, on, like, the far left, like, they try to you know, say that they're being progressive and they're trying to like fight for things that, you know, are, you know, clouded in social justice, but at the same time, when you're too radical, you can step over that line of, you know, and I think, I think we're going to like talk about this, but I think that part of that, you know, far left, you know, what makes it so tricky is like the pro-Palestinian argument too. And like, we see that more on the far left and like, there's a lot of just misconceptions like surrounding you know those discussions so i don't know if we'd want to use this as like a, a point to transition or if you want to add more sam at all but yeah right before we transition i just want to say that i think when we have this discussion about kind of a rise in anti-semitism specifically from the left i think we tend specifically to have this conversation in a very america-centric uh tendency very america-centric lens and I think that it also tends to be a lot like, you know, we, we say that, you know, it's not really as blatant, it's kind of going under the radar. But also, I think that's because it's here, where the Democratic Party here, or at least I guess that's the, the dominant party on the left in, in our country is a lot more centrist than other countries in the world, specifically like the UK, where, um, and I think, you know, a lot of people didn't really see this in the news, which I think is a huge deal. Uh, um, Jeremy Corbyn was basically relieved of his position uh, as the as the leader of the opposition for the Labour Party because of anti-Semitism. He um, had been a known anti-Semite for a long time. Uh, he had a lot of anti-Semitic rhetoric. He enabled a lot of anti-Semites, um, and because of that, he he was you know pushed out of the party, which was a good thing. But I think that's another case of, you know, oh, yeah, no, we got rid of the anti-Semitism. Now we can get back to work when, you know, clearly Corbyn is not the the only reason that the Labour Party has an anti-Semitism problem. And, yeah, I think that it really is just kind of like a worldwide attitude where, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think um, if you do research anti-Semitism and the history of it, you'll see how every political ideology sometimes can find a way to incorporate anti-Semitic ideals, which is like super fascinating to me um, because it speaks to the like malleable nature of this form of hatred um, and just how like contradictory it can be because you'd see anti-Semitic ideals like in um, like around the era of World War II in Europe that was 
associating Jews with communism, but then also associating Jews with capitalism at the same exact time. And somehow like that's still like, no one was like, that makes no sense. People didn't even like pay attention to that. Like it was nonsensical, but um, it's interesting to see like how easily anti-Semitism can be woven into whatever political agenda um, it needs to be and usually is. Um, so I think that speaks to like the culture in America of it existing on both sides of our political system. Um, and again, like in Europe, I think anti-Semitism is particularly bad. Um, and I think the issue with Jeremy Corbyn, who was like a prominent political figure and like potentially had a lot of decision-making power in like a huge country, well, huge as in not by size, but by like political influence um, of having power and decision-making there. Um, so that was like a, one example of it. And there is so many examples of Jews being affected by this on the ground in Europe. Um, so yeah, I think it is really interesting to see. And I think speaking to the American um, kind of like just existence of left anti-Semitism, um, I think so speaking again to the issue of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and how this has influenced this issue. I think Trump was very much buddy-buddy with Netanyahu and very much um, a, a supporter of Israel, um, which I think a lot of Jewish people, a lot of Israelis would say like, that was very helpful to Israel, um, even if they didn't agree with like what Trump was doing and how he was doing it. Um, but they did have a good relationship. And I think that kind of led people to associate Israel and Jews with Trump and with the right and then with these far right groups. Um, and like speaking back to experiences at UConn, there was at one point, I think this was last year, that the group Turning Point USA came to our campus and they put out this poster that said, Israel has a right to exist, change my mind. And they basically just used what they knew was like a very controversial issue just to get lots of attention. Um, but unfortunately that issue was Israel. So then people at UConn are gonna walk by and see like Israel on a sign associated with this group Turning Point USA that is like known to be one of those most um, aggressive far right student and larger groups. Um, so I think that that has a lot to do with it, with Trump's relationship with Israel, leading people to associate those two things together and for more resistance to be seen by the left for that reason. Yeah. And I also think that like Trump's relationship with Israel and just kind of the, the I don't want to say just the Republicans, but like, I guess, yeah, Republican presidents in the last 20 years uh, relationship with Israel is, is very much, you know, it's, it's pretty clearly not to help the Jewish people. Like, I think, you know, when we go back to, you know, the, the early, the early 21st century that we were all, you know, born into, uh, Israel is a strategic foothold for, for Republicans. And, you know, I think a lot of them see it that way. They see it as, you know, you know, or, you know, oil is a very important resource. And if we're going to have any foothold in the Middle East, then Republicans kind of view it as we need to have Israel. And I feel like. A, that's not the reason that we should be protecting Israel. I feel like, you know, we should be protecting Israel because they have a right to be there. Um, and I also think that that 
uh, sentiment and that argument that, you know, Israel is our only friend over there and Israel is, you know, the Israel's the country that we need or else we're going to lose all of our resources over there or something creates the sentiment that Israel is like a colony, which is something that I see a lot where people say that Israel is a, is a colonial state, which it isn't <laughs> like, you know, you can, you could definitely make an argument that the, the settlements, which are, in my opinion, you know, a violation of human rights. Uh, you could, you could make an argument that the settlements that Israel has put out are, are colonizing that, that area, but the right to Israel being a state should, should never be referred to as a colony. It should never be referred to as imperialism because they have a right to be there. And I guess this is just totally tangential. Something that really annoys me is when people, one way that I see people attack the legitimacy of Israel all the time is they're like, oh, you know, countries shouldn't, uh, you know, you shouldn't have a country based on a religion. And I think, you know, first of all, I think, you know, Jewish identity is far more than a religion. I think it's an ethnicity, especially with people like me, where I'm not really particularly religious, but I'm half Jewish, you know, I can't change that. It's not like I can like decide to be, you know, decide to just not be Jewish because it's half of my family. But, um, I have had so many conversations with people who identify as Catholic, who make that argument where it's, you know, a state should not have the right if it's just based on a religion. And then I, I show them a map and I'm like, here is the Vatican. <laughs> and I'm like, this is a state that barely anybody lives in. The only reason it's there is because of a religion. There's no ethnicity that is Catholic, you know, it's not an ethnicity. But no one complains. I have never seen anybody complain about the existence of the Vatican because it's just there and people are fine with it. And I think that speaks to anti-Semitism in the fact that, you know, it's not the fact that it's a religious state that they have a problem there. It's the fact that it's a Jewish state. And that's a problem. Like that shouldn't be, you know, it, it's cloaked in kind of, we don't like religion, but really that's not what it is. Yeah, um, Sam, you just brought up like, 10 different awesome points in that one like just moment there sorry um, I went off. no like i think that was you brought up really important stuff like i want to make sure that i get to all of it because like yes i agree with you completely um i think in the first the first thing i want to speak on is the fact that judaism is falsely construed to be only a religion and i think that has been um like dangerous for the jewish people um, and I think partially that was due to a push within the Jewish people within like the 17th, 18th, 19th century to kind of assimilate into the communities that they were a part of. Um, and like speaking back to the, before the birth of Israel, um, someone like Theodore Herzl, who um, eventually was the, the mind behind the creation of modern day Zionism and then later Israel, um, at certain points he thought that the answer to solving anti-Semitism were for the Jews to blend into the societies around them and kind of let go of some of their um, cultural like practices um, to fit in better. So I think at that point, a lot of Jews at that point decided like, okay, no, I'm not just, I'm not a Jew. Like I am a German and my religion is Judaism, but my nationality and my loyalties therefore are with the country that I live in. Um, and the hope there was that people would say, okay, like you're a loyal German, like, you're a loyal Frenchman, like, we won't, we won't hate you so much. Um, because I think previously, like, Judaism 
and to be Jewish was seen as a separate national identity. And that was used to kind of otherize Jews a lot, I think, throughout places like Europe. Um, so I think the Jews tried a little trial and error there to see like, okay, what if we move this identity to be just our religious identity so that our national identity can be able to fit with the wider picture of the society that we're living around. And I think that today has persisted and people still, for that reason, probably among others, see Judaism as just being religion. Um, but it's important to remember that Judaism in like, I think using the word Judaism kind of confuses people because it sounds like a religion. Um, but I think the Jewish people, um, it's a peoplehood. I think what's important, you spoke to um, the idea that Israel is a colony or it's imperialist. Um, it's kind of impossible to fit the definition if you are born from the land that you are currently living in. Um, and again, that's challenging because the Jewish people were outside of that land for 2000 years, but that is the place of their birth and their homeland that they have held on to and like literally yearn for every day when they pray and like, especially like Passover just happened and they say next year in Jerusalem, it's a place that they're not going into as outsiders who have never stepped foot in land before. It's somewhere that they are living in currently that they have lived in before. So whatever your other beliefs might be about Israel, I think the word imperialist or colony would be like a fallacy in this case. Um, and I think that's difficult for people to see too, because moving the identity of being Jewish to being just a religion kind of erases that past history of them as an ethnic group and them as a people that do have roots somewhere and that somewhere being Israel. So I hope I spoke to like a lot of your points, but maybe I'll think of something else later that I forgot to say, but that was really, really awesome. Um, thank you. Yeah, and you totally spoke to all of them, so thank you. Cool. And I think one thing I want to add about that whole thing of, you know, it's it's not a colony, obviously, is that to kind of go really far back in the history and to look at, you know, the origins of, of the, the modern day, you know, rabbinic Jews and also, you know, a lot of other uh, groups of people. I see the argument of, you know, kind of who has a who has a, a historic claim to the land when it comes to the, the Jews and Palestinians or, or anybody. And if you look back to, you know, 2000 years ago, it's the same ancestors. <laughs> like, you know, the, you had the, the, the people that would go on to become, you know, the people that refer to themselves as Jews today, they, they were all Judaic peoples, but the people that would go on would lived in the South. And the people that would go on to be Palestinians would live primarily in the north, but they're all basically the same ancestors. <laughs> so I think it's kind of like, you know, if two cousins kind of argue about, you know, who has the who has the grandparents, like it's it's the same grandparents. <laughs> so it's just annoying where, you know, both both groups of people definitely have the right to live in the homeland that they both shared at one point. And I think it's, you know, there's a historic precedent that they were able to share it before. And I think they probably would be able to have an easier time sharing it if there weren't so many outside powers kind of pushing them to, you know, be at, at odds. Um, but I, I wonder if there will ever be kind of, I wonder if it's just simply, I think, you know, as, as a future educator in KD2, you know, we, I think a lot of, a lot of times we think that you know, education solves everything. And if everybody just knows, then like, it'll be, it'll be peace and harmony. 
But like, I wonder if, you know, you just get a bunch of leaders that know the history and know that like, it's happened before. Like, you know, <laughs> these groups of people have lived peacefully in this land before. Um, and the outside world stops kind of doing things for their own motives, if it's possible for there to be like a two-state solution or something. Because I, I genuinely think that would be the best solution, but I don't really know in this climate if that would be possible. Yeah, just to go back to what you were saying about, you know, the claim that like there shouldn't be like a state like based on you know, religion, like we see, like you gave like one example of the Vatican, but like Mecca is like a holy city and that's like for, for Islam, even like, and this is like, even at a completely different scale, but like Utah being the center for, you know, the Mormon faith and like Salt Lake city, like that, like it exists all over the world. So like the fact that people are using that argument, like giving those other examples just proves your point more that like why why are we discussing like the credibility of it just because it's tied to a religion like look at mecca look at the vatican even like you know utah may be a little bit of a weaker argument but like it's still valid like it's not its own country but it is a state within the united states which has like you know equal you know rights to the other 49 states um and even so areas just, like yeah. even areas like um Oh my God, I'm forgetting the name. There's a state in Russia that is uh, mostly um, Islamic. I believe it's Czechia. Uh, no, wait, Chechnya, sorry. Yeah, different. Czechia is the, the Czech Republic. Yeah, Chechnya is like a group that is a is a state in Russia. So there's like, these these places are all over the place. That's kind of, I guess, like an Islamic version of Russian Utah. <laughs> <laughs> very, 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 very gross generalization for that because Chechnya has a lot of uh, tension going on currently and has always really had tension, but so does Utah at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, at the very least, I think a lot of um, Zionist culture and community like does often cite the fact that there are so many um, Muslim states within the Middle East and outside of it. Um, so the the line is always like there's however many Muslim states like why can't we have one Jewish state um and I think that there is truth in that like like you said people have religious states um all the time um and like in Utah we have the <laughs> center for the Mormon life as well um and I think speaking to the idea of indigeneity um so at certain points, I think it is it is easy to say like the Jewish people were quote unquote there first, which is like technically true. Um, I think there has there was at one point a push for the a claim for the Palestinians to say that they were descendants of the Canaanites, um, which was since then I think disproved for the most part. Um, but that was kind of in this like fight to decide like who was there first like who was the most indigenous to the land here um and i think that is a common common argument that we see on both sides but i think that shouldn't really matter um i think the fact that both people that have a very long history with this land no matter whose is longer um can't really be denied and like should not be excluded and i think a lot of times one side or the other will just say like, okay, but we have been here for so long, or we started here and want to be here again. Like, 
and kind of ignore the the fact that this other community has been there for hundreds of years regardless um so i think that that argument is in itself like sometimes just kind of um it isn't very useful um and yeah like you said like the they are cousins these two peoples in some ways um but yeah and i think like yeah if we want to get into the idea of um like the solutions for the middle east and like i think the popular solution right now is the two-state solution um which i personally have like moved away from um partially out of the fact that it hasn't worked for so long and many efforts have been made to like make compromises that should have allowed it to be successful and so far it has not been successful um and partially out of optimism that like neither side would have to be excluded from parts of the land that they feel connected to um but that is not a very popular opinion and i think it's easy for if i come from a zionist perspective for the palestinian side maybe to then say like okay like you want one zionist state like you want to erase the palestinians like blah 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 but i don't think it really has to be so cut and dry um and again that, that works both ways i think if a palestinian says one state then um a staunch zionist might then like be afraid that they'd want it to be one palestine and erase the jews and maybe that's not the case either um but yeah i think i think that just comes to a sad truth about like pretty much every country in the world where you know when you have a country with a bunch of different identities in it or one one country with a bunch of different identities in it you're constantly at risk of you know one group taking power and deciding to be you know authoritarian where you know we we almost in this country had a problem uh, a couple months ago where you know we almost had a, a leader try to seize power and i think you know a one state solution would be amazing if you know we could get if we could get that optimism but obviously you know, there is that that sad truth that there could be you know the palestinians could try to make it one palestinian state or just one zionist state and then erasure of the other group but that definitely it makes it makes sense if we could have you know if we could figure out a way to get everybody to kind of accept each other and let that work but again i don't think anybody really knows the answer you know? <laughs> Yeah, I have I have one question. Um, how do you both feel in particular about other countries like getting getting involved? I know that the U.S. has been you know very involved in certain you know aspects, and that you know other other countries as well have tried you know to put put their foot in what what's happening. Do you think that that involvement is beneficial or is it is it doing more harm than good? Well, I think to go back to kind of, I know I kind of like to go back to ancient history, not even ancient history, but just old history. I think this goes back to the Crusades, where, you know, the Crusades was fought mainly between two groups of people that did not live in, in, in Israel. But it seems like every time there's always a line where it says, you know, X group, whether it was the Catholics or the, or the Muslims, you know, came into the Holy Land, killed all the Jews, and then started fighting. <laughs> And it's like, it's really sad that that's how it's written in history books, because, you know, I think the Jews, you know, being, you know, however many atrocities uh, being done to them in history have been done, I think that should be more than a line because, you know, those people were people. But 
I think that's just kind of the mentality that's existed for centuries where it's, you know, the Jews are there and people don't really regard them as a power. People don't really regard them as, you know, being worth a seat at the table. And it's, I, I don't think it's, you know, it's not to the same brutal degree as the Crusades were, but it does kind of seem that way where, you know, just like with, you know, all the other satellite countries, satellite wars that we see in the 20th century, where it's, you know, whether it's in South America or it's in, you know, Vietnam or Korea, I think that's kind of how the world works, where, you know, you get two sides of an argument and then all the big powers line up and they completely forget about the people that actually live there. Yeah, I think I personally, um, like, despise the way the international community has gotten involved with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and if there is imperialism anywhere, it is in the international influence of um, European powers, especially, like, before and during World War Two, and a little bit after. Um, so I think if anyone, like, if there's imperialism anywhere, that's where it is. Um, I think the international community has, unfortunately, a very um, harsh attitude towards Israel um, and has kind of taken, making a point to, like, let the world know that. Um, I think the fact that Israel is, like, condemned so often by the UN, while countries that commit, like, human rights atrocities are never even, like, mentioned um and let alone like officially condemned by the un um and like the eu in general also like takes a huge stance against israel um and i think an interesting conversation that i've heard as well is the fact that we are western people we come from a western culture and society um and israel is not necessarily that I think a lot of people try to paint it to be that way because it is very modern and it is a democracy. Um, but it is people who are Middle Eastern um, for a large part of the population and there's a culture and like it exists in an area surrounded by people from more of an Eastern or Middle Eastern perspective. So I think when Western powers come and try to apply their own principles and their own way of thinking, into the land that's already problematic because it is a totally different um just like ideology that exists in that type of culture that like we don't really experience so much being from the us or someone who's from europe um so i think that's like one of the biggest problems um is people trying to kind of make it fit into their western model when it really isn't like a western country um and yeah, I think a lot of countries try to make opinions about Israel and yeah, it really just does not um, add anything of value to the conflict or to solving it. Yeah, I think just like the fact that it was like the Palestinian mandate of Britain for like decades just goes to show that like, why did Britain have it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Um, that like Palestinians never had ownership of a state of their own. Palestine never existed as an officially recognized state ever in history. And I think um, 
at this point people like to blame Israel for that but like really that goes back to imperialist empires like from the Ottoman Empire into like the British mandate mm -hmm. um so like who really is to blame there for like this one piece of history now where Israel is getting the opportunity to exist but people like to forget that like Palestinians were um kind of removed from the right to have self-determination and ownership of their land because of these imperialist and later in history these um european imperialist countries so it's an important reminder okay well uh we have we have reached a good amount of time so uh i i don't have anything else to say more but does anybody uh have anything they'd like to add before we close out um i think actually just speaking to our conversation that we just had about israel i think like the wider context of this episode is to talk about campus anti-Semitism. And I think it's important that we had that conversation about Israel because um, from what I've seen personally, and I think like statistics would support this, the most common form of anti-Semitism that is experienced on college campuses probably is anti-Zionism. Um, and that is a really difficult line to draw for a lot of people. Um, but I think in speaking to the way that like European powers condemn Israel unfairly, um, that idea kind of translated to how Israel is perceived on college campuses when a lot of students um, that are against the existence of Israel will unfairly call attention to Israel um, and hold it to standards that other countries are not held to. Um, and I think that's like an important conversation to be had um, because it is just so timely in how anti-Semitism has manifested on college campuses and Israel has become one of the major um, excuses for people to express anti-Semitic ideology. So I'm glad that we did have that conversation to kind of tie it all together. I'm glad we had that conversation too. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely kind of sad how people like to point to one side and then not kind of think about both sides and yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that's all we have. Uh, as before we end up, I'd like to um, shout out uh, your podcast, uh, Ready Set Israel. Uh, yep. If you want to say anything about it, you can just for a little bit. Yeah, sure, I'd love to. So um, a couple people and myself started this podcast called Ready Set Israel. Everyone should go check it out on any podcast platform, Apple Music, Spotify, whatever. Um, it's basically supposed to be a news update that happens weekly where we talk about what's going on in Israel, in the Middle East, and on college campuses. So check it out. Listen to it after you're done listening to this episode. <laughs> and thank you guys for having me on today. It's been a really awesome conversation and I love talking about it. And I think it's great that you guys are giving it a platform because more people need to hear this conversation. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, this was awesome.